All right, I'm really excited today. I get to preach. I get to um, preach for the next few weeks, actually, while uh, my dad's out of town this week. He'll be back and be doing some stuff. Um, But I've been wanting to take us through the book of Ruth, because on Sunday morning in our Bible study, we're going through um, a a series called Suffering in the Sovereignty of God, and the story of Ruth so embodies what we're learning in in that lesson. I've been anxious to take us all through the story of Ruth. So hopefully through the next few weeks, we're going to make it all the way through the book of Ruth. Now, um, I don't get to preach very often, and so I'm a little bit nervous. (laughs) Uh, One time I had somebody, after I got to preach, say, I felt like you were talking to me, and they got mad about it because because they felt like I was talking to them. And I said, well, I'm not preaching to an imaginary congregation. You know, the, the uh, sermons that we prepare, myself or our pastor prepares, they're for you. They're for us, right? So this morning, it's uh, no different. These, this sermon is for us here in Christ Fellowship. And my hope is that God would use this word to transform our hearts and transform our minds and how we think about things, namely um, the sovereignty of God today. So Ruth is a prodigal story. It's a story in which a daughter goes out full and returns home humiliated. So, you know, when you think of the story of the prodigal son, the son goes out full and he returns home humiliated and empty only to be restored, lavishly restored by a prodigal father in the end. So the story follows God's familiar pattern of death and division and then resurrection and redemption. So we can see this pattern all the way back to the beginning in Genesis. God created, right? And then he divided. He created the waters and then he divided the waters. He created the land and then he divided the land. We see this throughout the stories of the Bible. Death, resurrection, division, Redemption. He created man, and then he separated man, and then he brought them together in a beautiful union, right? It's a beautiful motif that God likes to tell stories that follow this motif, death, resurrection. He, this is a story of fertility made barrenness only to be made abundantly fruitful. So this story then points us to Christ and to the good news that is God's sovereign grace. And even further, for those of us who are in Christ, as the story follows the pattern of death and resurrection, it instructs us how to live as we experience the same pattern over and over as it is woven all throughout our lives. We see this pattern woven all throughout our lives, not always in physical deaths, but we experience those throughout our lives as well. But we have separation reunion separation, redemption, division, redemption throughout our lives. It's a story, Ruth is a story of a king ascending like a sunrise to break into our dark night and to banish hopelessness and despair. If you have faith to see, it's a story of a king who comes to receive his inheritance and brings gifts and even who himself becomes a gift king who becomes a gift. The story's namesake, Ruth, is not Jewish, 
which makes it stand out even more. It's the only book of the Bible whose main character is not Jewish. So it, it stands out and it's begging for us to notice it and begging for us to um, pour over it and uncover its mystery. Proverbs 25.2 says this, It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. So let's pray and ask God to illuminate his word to us by his powerful Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would glorify yourself today, that you would illuminate your son and your scriptures. Lord, I pray that you would use this sermon, use these words, move on our hearts and minds and bring them into submission and conformity with your good purpose and cause our hearts to leap for joy at your promise. For Christ's sake we pray, amen. Ruth chapter one. Let's read the whole chapter. This is the word of the Lord. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died. So that the women... The women were left without her the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughter daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, "Go Return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Naomi. 
Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why then call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. In the very um, first verse, the scene is set, and the narrator begins with sad strings, if you think of a movie. You got the sad strings in the background. It's in the days when the judges ruled. There was a famine in the land. This is a time, this is a time, the judges ruling, uh, that's been said, it's a time when the judges needed to be judged. It was not a good time. In our Bibles, Ruth comes right after the book of Judges. How many of you knew that? How many of you, let me just ask you this before I get too far. How many of you remember reading the story of Ruth and are familiar with the story? Anybody are remember reading and remember kind of the basic gist of the storyline okay it's a kind of a uh small book and so it gets easily overlooked and we forget the stories if we you know haven't gone back to it in a long time so um hopefully you'll get a good little overview of the story here um Book of Judges. It's the context, the time of the judges. And so what we can actually do in our Bibles is turn back one page and see the end of Judges and you can read the very last verse of Judges and see just how dark the situation was. So if you look back in verse 25 of chapter 21 of Judges, this is what it says. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This was the time of the Judges no king, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Not a good time. Not a good time to be um, alive in the sense of law and order. But um, as we begin this book, I want you to know something. It's a little bit of, uh, of an interesting note. So when you read the Bible, an important question to ask is through what lens did the original readers see this? Through what lens did they understand this? What's the context? What's the historical context? How did they understand it? And so um, we don't know exactly when the book of Ruth was written. We don't know exactly who wrote the book of Ruth, but we know it was in the time of the judges, and so it gives us some context to see how this story plays out. But um, when we're asking about context, context we're asking what their framework was for understanding this book so it's a in our bibles ruth comes after judges but interestingly enough in the arrangement of the hebrew scriptures in the arrangement of the jewish bibles ruth comes after a different book in the bible ruth comes after proverbs in the jewish scriptures in their arrangement so it's in the time of the judges, but in their Bibles it comes after Proverbs. What this means is that they would, they would come to the last chapter of Proverbs, which is chapter 31. And does anybody remember what you read in chapter 31 of Proverbs? What do we read about in chapter 31 of Proverbs? Huh? What? A virtuous woman, right? We read about a virtuous woman. Proverbs 31 is about a virtuous wife or a virtuous woman. It's, uh, and so, so we come to the end of chapter 31 of Proverbs. We come to the end of that. They read about what makes a virtuous woman and guess what story they come to next? 
Ruth. Interesting, right? So it's more than just an interesting note, though. It's something that should inform how we actually read and understand the story. So um, in the very first chapters here, first verse of Ruth, we are introduced to the first characters, Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, their sons, Malon and Kilion. And it doesn't take long for more grief to be piled onto the sad story. You know, there's a famine in the land. So we got this family who are suffering through the famine. And now the, the uh, author piles on more grief to the already sad story. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies. And, and, and the implication of the way that it puts it in the, in the Hebrew text is that he kept on dying. In other words, we could read it like, Elimelech kept on dying. And he, it was a slow and agonizing death. So Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies, which leaves Naomi with only her two sons who take Moabite wives and then they keep on dying. So Ruth being a Moabite, Ruth being a Moabite, that's where she's from, is actually a big deal. It's a big deal. And the author makes reference to her being a Moabite, being from Moab, not too few times in this very short book, four chapters of Ruth, and it talks about it multiple times, the author. Ruth the Moabitess, Ruth, the woman from Moab, you being a Moabitess. He makes reference to this because it's actually kind of a big deal. So in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse three, it says that no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Much later in Israel's history, in a, uh, one of the priests named Ezra, in his day, they're rebuilding the wall. They took this prohibition, this, this command in Deuteronomy, they took it to mean, um, mean that Hebrew men were not to marry Moabite women. And so they actually separated from the Moabite women. And the families were separated. It was a time of great mourning. And then, then Ezra said, don't mourn. And so it was this tumultuous time. So, but there's some debate on what Deuteronomy 23.3 means. Is, is it a prohibition? You can't marry these women or is it not a prohibition? So what we can know is at the very least, it is a caution. It is a caution to say this is a risky thing to marry a Moabite woman. To marry a foreign wife is a risky thing. Why? Because it could lead you astray from the God of Israel. So, Remember, Ruth is a prodigal story. And so here's Naomi, just like the younger son. She goes out full and she is finding herself in the pig pen, in the pigsty, eating the pig food, you know, at the bottom of the bottom. She's, hus- she's a widow, no husband. Her sons now have left her. And in this time, in this uh, uh, culture, this agrarian culture, they're having, this is lifeblood. So being a widow at this time with no sons, no namesake, it was devastating. It was devastating. So keep on going, verses six through 18. We see Naomi hears that the people in Bethlehem uh, are not doing so bad and she decides to return. And so she tells her daughters-in-law to go back to their mother's house. And she prays that the Lord will deal kindly with them. In fact, this word that they use is hesed. You might, you might have heard that before. It's, it's the kindness of the Lord. It's this overflowing kindness. And she says, go try and find that kindness, that overflowing kindness somewhere else, back to your other gods, back to your mother's house, to your pagan land. Go try and find that there. Just to, that should um, show us how um, Ruth, uh, Naomi did not have any confidence in Ruth, Ruth's well-being 
back in Israel. And so she says, go find kindness back at your mother's house. She, uh, uh, she, she says that she, they have dealt kindly with her two sons, Malon and Kilion, and so she says, go out and find your own kindness now. She says she hopes they'll remarry. And they all begin to cry, and like polite daughters-in-law, they refuse to leave their poor mother-in-law alone. And so Naomi continues to insist they leave her with strong arguments of a lifetime of loneliness, a lifetime of barrenness. And she says, no, my daughters, it's exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And so Orpah hears enough, and she's convinced. She leaves leaves Naomi. She goes back to her mother's house. But Ruth, it says, clings to Naomi. Ruth clings to her. So Ruth could not be persuaded. And what comes next in the text is what I believe is some of the most beautiful prose, what some of the most beautiful prose ever, ever written down. Ruth says to her mother-in-law, and this is so beautiful, it's used at weddings. I, I, it was at my wedding. It's used in weddings. It's some of the most beautiful things you see. It, it, it's beautiful, but think about it. Ruth said it to her mother-in-law. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. Ruth 1, 16 through 17, Ruth says this to Naomi. Don't urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Now think about this. Think about this. So Ruth tells Naomi this. Your God shall be my God. But what had, what had Naomi just told Ruth in verse 13? What had Naomi just told Ruth in verse 13? Look at 13. It says, the hand, Naomi says, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So Naomi experienced God's bitter providence and her testimony was a bitter testimony to Ruth. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me, Naomi. Get far from me, Ruth. Go back to your father's house to find overflowing kindness and mercy. Go back to your pagan gods to find kindness and mercy. Get away from me. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And what is Na- what is, how does Ruth respond to Naomi? Your God shall be my God. Now, that's incredible, right? Is that that incredible? The testimony Naomi gives to Ruth of God is a bitter testimony. And yet Ruth says, your God, the God of your bitter providence will be my God. But what's even more incredible, what's even more incredible is that Ruth herself experienced this bitter providence. She, um, she abandons everything now and she falls completely upon the mercy of God of the God of Israel, of the God of her own bitter loss, Ruth's own bitter loss. You remember Ruth married an Israelite man and for 10 years, Ruth is barren. You know what that means? At the end of Ruth in chapter four, we see the Lord gave her conception. Ruth knew, Naomi knew who gave conception and for 10 long years, Ruth is barren childless. Again, in that culture, that is devastating. 
And so this is not just Naomi's bitter testimony. This is Ruth's bitter testimony. And yet we see Ruth's faith. Your God, Naomi, will be my God. That is even more incredible than where you die, I will die. Your people shall be my people. All that is beautiful and incredible. But the most incredible thing is your God will be my God. And so she abandons everything. Ruth abandons everything. She falls completely upon the mercy, the hesed, the kindness of God, of the God of Israel, of the God of her own bitter loss. And Ruth dies. Ruth is separated, in other words. She doesn't die, die. She dies. She's separated from her house for good, from her land for good. She's separated from everything that she has had before and she follows another. And so as a matter of fact, the narrator of this story, the narrator of Ruth is is setting the story up to be, um, to resemble a story of a patriarch. You know what a patriarch is? Abraham was a patriarch. Joseph was a patriarch. It's setting the story up of, a, of one who leaves, who goes out from his father's house by faith to another land to follow God. A patriarch. And so the narrator actually setting up the story to resemble that kind of a story. She, Ruth goes out by faith from her father's house, from her land that she knows to follow God in a foreign land. She experiences a new birth. A new birth, a new, citizen, a new citizenship, a new father, a new people. So when Naomi sees that Ruth is determined to go with her, she says no more. She wants to keep trying to convince Ruth, but it's pointless. Two women who are both obviously stubborn and it's pointless. So Naomi, the way that it puts it is, Naomi kind of just stops talking to Ruth. She gets mad. She's got a little bit of a bad attitude. And so she may be mumbling under her breath or maybe she's just talking to herself, but it's, it says she stops speaking to Ruth. She stops speaking. All right, you want to come with me? Fine. Mm, silence the whole way. So the uh, verses 19 through 22, they, they come to Bethlehem. Bethlehem means, if you remember, what Bethlehem means, the house of bread. Bethlehem, the house of bread. So they come from famine. They come from barrenness. They come from fruitlessness and they arrive in Bethlehem, the house of bread. And the whole town is stirred up and the women begin to whisper to one another, is this Naomi? Is this Naomi? And she answers them and she says, don't call me Naomi, the pleasant one. Call me Mara, the bitter one. So your Bible might have a footnote. Naomi means pleasant, the pleasant one. Mara means the bitter one. So she says, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. For the Lord has, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me pleasant? Why call me Naomi, the pleasant one, when the Lord has testified against me, has testified against my very name, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So in our modern minds, in our modern minds, we wrestle with things like whether God caused or allowed some catastrophe, some calamity. 
we wrestle with these things. But to Naomi, and in, and in reality, the question is irrelevant. The question is non-consequential. Because at the end of the day, Naomi knew what another sufferer, Job. You know, Job, he was a sufferer. Naomi knew what Job knew. Naomi knew what any thinking Christian knows, and that is this, that at the beginning of it all is God, is the eternal one, the almighty, she says. And nothing happens apart from his will. Nothing happens apart from his will. I, the most controversial ver- verse in the whole Bible. You've heard me say it before, maybe. What is it? The most controversial book in the whole Bible. It's not a scripture about homosexuality. It's not a scripture about anything like that. You know what it is? The most controversial book in the whole Bible? Genesis 1.1. God In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What does that tell us? That in the beginning is only God. In the beginning is the Almighty. It is God. And so nothing happens apart from God. Even if you want to just take it from that level, nothing happens apart from Creator, Almighty God. Naomi knew full well who causes famines. Psalm 105.16, talking about the famine in Joseph's day, a, a very terrible famine says this God summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread Naomi knew that Naomi the widow and mother-in-law to a barren widow also knew who gives life and who takes life she knew that she knew full well the word in Leviticus 26 that spoke of blessing for obedience and punishment for disobedience She was correct in her assessment. The Almighty had brought calamity upon her. Things were dark and Naomi was faithless. She was hopeless. But we have seen, in spite of the bitterness of Naomi's life and her hopelessness, in spite of her hopelessness, something incredible has happened, hasn't it? Something incredible has happened. Ruth, has come to trust in Naomi's God. In Naomi's almighty God, Ruth has come to trust. One pastor observed that Naomi's problem was that the story of Joseph hadn't gotten into her bones. The story of Joseph hadn't gotten into Naomi's bones. And so she she makes this correct assessment about the sovereignty of God and her theology on the matter is good. It's right. And, and it's a lot better than, you know, the soft theology of our day that kind of tries to make excuse after excuse for God being God, for God being almighty. Well, we make excuses for God who is sovereign and almighty. And the point cannot be overstated. God is almighty. God is God. He is the creator of everything, right? In the beginning, God created. He is the author and the finisher, our Bibles say. He calls all the shots. He makes all of the ultimate decisions. There's nothing anyone can do or choose that can change or thwart God's eternal plan. Psalm 33, 10 through 11 says this. 
The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Proverbs 19 verse 21 says this, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So this has some really, really big implications as we see magnified in the story of Ruth. And yet, God's supremacy, God's sovereignty, God's godness, that's what it means to say God. It's God, God in his godness. (laughs) Being almighty, it isn't just a phenomenon in a little portion of the scriptures, right? It's consistently taught throughout. So it, Listen to these scriptures. If you want to take some notes and look them up in your own Bibles, that'd be great. Daniel 2, 21 says, God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. When those kings are on their thrones, when those kings that God sets up are on their thrones, Proverbs 21, 1 teaches us that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. President Obama's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord and God, the almighty God, will turn it wherever he will. Job 2.10 teaches us that good and bad come from the same hand of the Lord. Destruction, Amos 3.6 says, destruction does not come to a city unless the Lord has done it. And obviously, Obviously, blessing and restoration are from God as we see from Adam, from the story of Adam on, right? Through the stories of Noah, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Ruth. We see it here. We see it in the judges, Joshua, Samson. We see it in the story of Esther. We see it in the New Testament, in Peter, and in Paul's lives. So unbelievers point to evil and death in the world and would have... And they would have us to believe that either God is all-powerful or all-good, but he cannot be both. This is what unbelievers do. Unbelievers point to calamity. They point to destruction, and they say, well, Christians, this means that your God is either all-powerful, he is either almighty, or he is good. But he can't be both, because look at this problem. That's nonsense. Some of these scriptures, though, might even sound like contradictions to you, what you think or what you know, as if God's sovereignty makes him capricious, you know, makes him mean, or maybe schizophrenic, you know, like nice one day, but you make one wrong move, and all of a sudden, you know, all hell breaks loose. (laughs) No, no. Sovereignty and goodness are not contradictions. They're not contradictions of his character and his nature. Instead, what they are are ingredients. They are ingredients to a glorious finale. So remember, God is telling a death and a resurrection story. He's always telling a death and a resurrection story. He's telling a division and redemption story. He's telling a story, like I said, of fall and redemption, of barrenness made fruitfulness. 
So if you think of a baker making a cake, individual ingredients, and I've said this before, you've heard this analogy before, individual ingredients tasted all by themselves are not gonna be very pleasant, right? You go stick your finger in the flour jar, you're not gonna enjoy that very much. You know, dip some vanilla, you know, and you take a teaspoon of vanilla straight, it's not gonna be very pleasant, right? Mm-mm. What about a teaspoon of baking soda? No. Sugar, that's the only option here for, for yummy, <laughs> yummy taste. <laughs> sugar, that's it. But if you try and make a cake out of sugar, what's gonna happen? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing's gonna happen. So a baker makes a cake and he t- put, takes these individual ingredients and he puts them all together. Tasted by themselves, they're not pleasant, right? They're not pleasant, they're bitter, literally bitter. But all of a sudden, this thing comes together. These things are joined. This separation is brought together, right? And what happens? What's the result? If you do it right, delicious, beautiful, tasty, sweet, good. Or if you think of the theater or a story, you, you have the triumphs of a good story. How many of you like to rent a movie and it's, Uh, Once upon a time, there was a prince and a princess who had no problems ever and they lived happily ever after the end. That's not a good story. (laughs) What kind of movies do we like? What kind of stories does everybody know are good? The kind that have triumph, right? And how do you get triumph? A good story has to be preceded by darkness, by a conflict, by a problem that has to be overcome. A triumph has to have something to be triumphed. And so a knight can't be celebrated as a dragon slayer without a what? A dragon. Without a dark night, a dark forest, a scary, you know, a scary journey. So how can we call a baker evil for using flour and vanilla? How can we call the author evil for the dragon and for the battle scene? If they didn't use the proper ingredients or the proper components, would they be good bakers? Or good authors? No. Nobody's going to rent that movie. Nobody's going to rent that movie. Once upon a time, they lived happily ever after, the end. Not a good story. So God is sovereign over all. He is sovereign over the good, the bad. He is sovereign over the sweet, the bitter. He deals in sweet and bitter ways, but they are all his works, and they are all ultimately good. Ultimately good. When you're in the night, when you're scooping out the flour, and if you taste it, that's not going to taste very sweet. But ultimately, it is good. Our part is to trust him. John Piper says this, The book of Ruth aims to show that all of history, even its darkest hours, serves to magnify the glory of God's grace. So, do you believe this? Do you believe this? If you have a hard time believing that, then here's what I call you to do. Believe it. Repent and believe it. Be like the man who tells Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Believe it. So you see, Naomi's problem was not her loss. Naomi's problem was not that she lost her husband, she lost her sons, that she never got grandchildren, That's not Naomi's problem. Naomi's problem was not the darkness she experienced. It wasn't the famine. The the problem Naomi had was that she had become bitter. She had become hardened. 
And so rather than taking from the example of Joseph, now think about Joseph. You know the story of Joseph. Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers. Left for dead, right? They sell him. They leave him for dead. They don't know or don't care what happens to him. Joseph looks them in the eye years later in a position of power and authority. He could have with one word taken their heads from their bodies. Nobody would have asked another question. He looks his would-be murderers in the eyes and what does he say to them? Is he bitter? Is he hardened? Is he full of ill will and unforgiveness? No. What does he say to them? He says, and he, he says, lost my place, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. That's what he tells his brothers. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Naomi was blinded by her hardness and she was she was trapped in her despair. She was trapped. But you remember, Ruth is a story of a king ascending like a sunrise to do what? To break into our darkness. To break into our night, to our dark night, and to banish hopelessness and despair. So the narrator at the end of the very first scene ever so gently alludes to the hope present in this darkness. You see how the, how the uh, first scene, how chapter one ends? He alludes to this hope. It comes to a close and it says, and they came to the house of bread. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. It starts with a famine and now we come to the end of the first scene with a harvest. So chapter one is filled with blow after blow for Naomi. Famine, death, the death of her husband, the death of her two sons. She's, she's um, blow, the blow after blow of death, famine, barrenness, no grandchildren for 10 years, no, nobody to keep the namesake, uh, name alive to, to take care of her blow after blow. And Orpah has left Naomi after 10 years of being in relationship with Naomi. So you have that loss. All of this comes together to paint a, a pretty bleak picture for Naomi. But if we have eyes to see, we, we can see clear signs of hope that all of this, although bitter, is not for harm. It's not for destruction, but for a good future and a hope. You recognize that phrase? From Jeremiah. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, to give you a hope and a future. You know when that was written? That was written in a very dark time. But God is reminding us, and, and this story is reminding us that even though the picture looks really dark, God is doing this stuff to Naomi. God is messing with her, if you want to think about it that way, not just because he's mean or he's ugly or he's capricious. No, he's working his plan for a future and a hope. And we see it played out beautifully in Ruth. It's a sweet and it's a bitter providence that is working toward Naomi's good and glory and ultimately, ultimately toward a Christ-exalting finale. So I'll just give you a hint. I'll, I'll, I'll skip to the back of the book and I'll read this. 
If you, if you go to the beginning of the Gospels and you read the genealogies of Jesus, guess who shows up there? Ruth. Ruth, the Moabitess. Ruth, the foreigner. Ruth, the ex-pagan worshiper who forsakes all, follows Naomi, follows Naomi's God. Now she shows up in the line of Christ. So where does this leave us? As believers in Christ, this pattern of death and resurrection or darkness and light is a familiar one, but it needs to be familiar to us in the right way. It needs to be familiar to us in the right way. Hope must have roots in our bones like it did with Joseph. Joseph who stood before his brothers, his betraying, murderous brothers, who stood before them with forgiveness, hope, joy. We must be a people who do not forget God's promise in the valley of shadows. We must be a people who do not despair and grieve as the world grieves. We can grieve, but Paul says don't grieve as the world grieves. Because why? Because we are people who have hope. We have hope. So we grieve with hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have given us hope. Thank you that in your Son you gave us hope, a light in our darkness. You saved us. I pray in the coming weeks as we continue to read through the story of Ruth that you would use it to enlighten us and to teach us, to train us that when we are cut, we would bleed hope and joy resurrection. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.